from Ryokan. He says, without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone, I hike with a deer. Cheerfully, I sing with the village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fills my heart. It's a favorite poem of mine in the last year. Without desire, everything is sufficient. In this poem, Ryokan is describing the fullness and joy that are the fruits of a life of practice. He wanders through the mountains with the deer. He enjoys fully the children, the life, the youth, singing with them. The stream cleanses his ears both literally and the way the sound of the brooks has been cleansing our ears. The magnificence of the pine becomes one with him. This is the happiness that Howie was talking about last night. Without desire, everything is sufficient. So Rio Khan is exemplifying for us the happiness of a renunciate. And if we know the secret of opening, allowing, accepting, letting go, letting be, the secret teaching of non attachment, non-clinging, then we too may know the happiness of a renunciate. The truth that we actually need very little to be happy. So I'd like to speak this evening about renunciation, (coughs) practice of renunciation or surrender and how we might relate to these qualities and what they have to offer us in this practice. Now, as some of you have been hearing for five weeks now and a few of you for the last week, the Buddha often described his teaching as going upstream or against the current, contrary to the ways of the world. And the way of the world is to satisfy desire. 
this kind of predominant philosophical belief underpins most of the action that happens in the world. And most of us have really gone with this philosophical belief quite fully. Really trying to seek happiness by pursuing things or people, getting our needs met. Really, you know, fine to do, is how we said last night. Nothing wrong with it. But I think it's very clear we wouldn't be here if it worked. We wouldn't be here if getting what we wanted made us happy. We live in one of the most, the richest country, maybe in the history of the world. And there's so much that we have on many, on almost every level. Houses, cars, computers, things, things. You know, I could go on and on on things. But it hasn't made us happy. It hasn't given us true happiness. And this desire, wanting, and pursuing what we want, it's very fundamental to nature, to our animal nature. Remember, with these bodies, we, we end up in the animal realm. Animals pursue what they want. They seek pleasure, they avoid pain. It's a very normal animal instinct. Again, there's nothing wrong with it. We seem to have a kind of unique opportunity here in life, human beings. Because we seem to have our feet on the ground, but our head is up in heaven. We seem to be able to go in many worlds that we have this animal nature and then we have a nature that's not just the animal nature. In the Buddhist teachings, in the Mahayana, they have this part of the myth of the Buddha's birth is that when he's born, he takes seven steps and he says, between heaven and earth, I am the world honored one. He acknowledges this nature that includes the earth, includes the animal, the physical, and something greater. So we have this tendency to pursue and believe that satisfying desire will lead to happiness. Renunciation is very interesting because it says the opposite. It says letting go of desire, letting go of grasping, clinging, that that is where true happiness is found. And so we don't abandon desire because it is bad or morally evil or repugnant, but because the Buddha teaches it's the root of suffering, that it doesn't lead to true happiness. People have a lot of reactions to this idea. And I think some of the reactions are based on a misunderstanding of renunciation itself. 
So I'd like to clarify what that means. And this is from the Oxford English Dictionary. Renunciation is the action of renouncing, giving up, surrendering. In many ways, this is meditation practice itself. That we sit here on the cushion and we practice surrendering to life as it displays itself and it reveals itself moment by moment. That breath displays itself. That feelings show themselves. That the process of thinking happens and then a sound and then a mood and then a sense of ease and then a reaction, and then some fear, and then spaced out. And our practice is simply to open and allow each moment and let it be known. The second definition says that renunciation is the action of giving up That's a great skill in meditative practice. Give up. And it says the action of giving up something. So what do we give up? We give up our claims to experience. We give up the owning of it. We give up each experience as it leaves. We give up everything, actually. Suzuki Roshi, when talking about renunciation, says, renunciation is not having to do anything about the things of this world, but seeing that everything changes. So in that sense, this giving up is aligning with the truth of the way things are. Now the third definition says renunciation means to renounce the world. And this is maybe the most traditional understanding of renunciation. And this retreat is an expression of that. You've renounced the world for a month or two months. You've left the world. You've come into a cloistered environment in order to discover what? Who are you? What is this life that's happening here? What is freedom? Is there wholeness? What is true happiness? And so we've entered a monastic or contemplative life. And this is a rich aspect of spiritual life. But I think if we limit renunciation to 
simply renouncing the world and spiritual life to renouncing the world, it's not going to work for us. If you notice, we actually have no monastics sitting here. That we're temporary monastics, part-time. Uh, as um, Sokni Rinpoche says, he's a, a half-monk. We're half-monks. For certain periods, times in our life, with regularity, we're monks, we're nuns. We're contemplatives in, in the monastic sense. But other times, we're lay people. We're hidden monastics. We're walking around and nobody even knows we're monastics except us. You know, I taught a retreat recently in San Francisco, a, a, a non-residential retreat. And uh, some people came the first day and I said, pretend you're on retreat. And they looked at me, I said, well, it's like if you go to Spirit Rock, everybody there is pretending they're on retreat. And so it's really good because it starts to feel like you're on retreat. Let's do the same thing in the city. We'll pretend. It works really well. So what does this mean to us then as lay people? What is renunciation then? What is it going to mean when you go home someday far away? Renunciation then means that we, because we're not going to withdraw from the world when we go home. We're going to be right in the middle of it. But this, this, this monastic training is training to learn to live in the middle of the world and let go. To have the things of the world, the relationships of the world, the responsibilities of the world, the joys of the world, and let go. In the Sufi tradition, this is called to be in the world, but not of it. Now, the definitions of renunciation continue. And for me, it moves to a whole other octave. So the next definition is to give up oneself. This is Oxford English Dictionary. I thought that was pretty good. So to give up oneself, the attachment to oneself, to the idea of oneself. And the Buddha says it over and over again in the teachings. He says, the instructed discipline, disciple beholds, remember the word behold from the other night? The instructed discipline beholds material form, which means form, body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness itself, and understands this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So that when material form, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness, and so on, change and become otherwise, there will not arise for him grief, sorrow, suffering, lamentation, and despair.
Now this is a whole talk in and of itself, the talk on selflessness and the letting go of self. And you'll hear more about that as we continue this retreat. What I find interesting in the definition is that it continues and it says this. First it says to give up oneself. And then it says to give oneself up to some influence, some course of action, to abandon oneself or devote oneself entirely. So now we start to get to the heart of renunciation. That when we give up ourself, we give ourselves up to a life of practice, to spiritual life. And that it's one aspect of renunciation itself is devotion. And we begin to see that we serve spiritual life and not the other way around. Suchido Bhikkhu said it this way. He said, what sustains the spiritual life is that it becomes independent of one's own volition. It has a life of its own that one comes to recognize and serve. And so practice becomes the practice of serving these moments of life with our attention, with an appropriate response, with skillful means. What needs to happen now? The breath, one calms, and then one relaxes, opens, and then all the phenomena comes, and then there's being jangled by it, and so maybe coming back to the breath to recollect, or maybe opening to the jangling, and then the bell rings, and one lets go of the meditation, and goes to the walking, and the walking becomes calm and clear, and then the bell rings for the eating, and one lets go of that. Instead of controlling the meditation, we let it have its impact on us. In that sense, we don't do it, it does us. And this devotion, this abandoning ourselves to practice is an important piece to give oneself up, to give oneself fully. Ken Wilber wrote this, he said, he wrote it many years ago, spiritual practice is not something we do for 20 minutes a day or six hours a day. It's not something we do once a day or once a week a year or once a month a year. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their validation. It is a prior commitment to truth, lived, breathed, intuited, and practiced 24 hours a day. To intuit your true self is to commit your entire being to that actualization. And so a retreat like this is an incredibly wonderful, precious, opportunity to give oneself completely because the simplicity of the renunciate form in this style 
supports it in every way. Now, traditionally, in the monastic community or the renunciate community, there are considered four requisites. What do we need to practice? What do we need to awaken? What do we need to be happy? Food. Food's pretty good here. We've got that covered. Okay. Shelter. It's not bad accommodations. You might not have a single room, but it's pretty comfy. Food, shelter, clothing. We're not supplying the clothing, so it's probably better than if we supplied it, right? And medicine. And we have some medicines if you need it, and if something serious happens, then we'd get you to a doctor. It said that's all that's needed to wake up. Those are the kind of fundamental pieces that a human being needs. Now, our lives are somewhat complicated. You know, these requisites were originally given 2,500 years ago. And so, if you're living a lay life, which we are, householders, we need usually some more things. Most of us have jobs. You need a job. If you live in the Bay Area, mostly you need a car, so cars are important. (coughs) It's hard to live without a phone these days. I don't know too many people who don't have a phone. Um, Computer's important just because it's almost impossible to do some things without it. We just applied to college for my daughter And a lot of the applications were online, and the college counselor said, in four years, you'll only be able to apply online. You know, so you need a computer. TV, at least check in once in a while with the world, and, you know, Melrose Place or whatever, you know. (laughs) Football games, if the Niners ever get better, you know. Some of us, it's very important to have a Palm Pilot. Really, really helps my life. Really need it. Often, if you travel a lot, like I do, I see a lot of people traveling. They now have air purifiers you can wear, you know, right around your neck. That's really important for plane travel. So, you know, there's a lot that we need as lay people. Or at least we think we need. You know, it seems like we need. And sometimes we can let go of some of that. This is from uh, Barbara Streisand. She said, I feel like letting go of things. I want only two houses rather than seven. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. It's a good start. (laughs) And, you know, it could, there's a little, it's rough here sometimes, you know. It could be a little rougher. It could. I'll, I'll give you an example. I've been reading a book, a wonderful book, that Jack pointed me to, about a Chan master, Chinese Zen master. I'll just give you a little taste of what his monastery was like. 
He said, it said the Chan Monastery with its 13 monks was a Buddha's boot camp, a place where you went to get empty, rough brown robes, a spar unheated cell, six feet by nine feet, poor food, hard work, duty, tedious, unrelenting practice. And the teacher, the, now this is in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, basically. It's in the foothills below a mountain of, it, right next to the Gobi. And so to see the teacher, you had to go all the way up the mountain. He lived just below the peak in a cave. He was known as the barefoot master because he never wore shoes. Gets a little cold there in the winter. And so it says, uh, tedious, unrelenting practice. And finally, high atop the mountain at the end of a dangerous, torturous climb in a freezing cave, a barefoot maniac, a fierce saint, a Buddha, your teacher, was waiting not to talk to you. <laughs> can, you can you kind of see Jack up on the hill there? You know, and you've got to go up just to have your interview. And so, you know, it could be a little harder, but it actually doesn't need to be. It's hard enough. You know why? Because we have to deal with ourselves. Now, And it's hard to let go. It is. All we have to do is let go and be with what's happening. Life's a breeze. That's That's when it's easy. But it's difficult for us for many reasons. Powerful conditioning. Powerful beliefs. Deep beliefs. And so we don't try to pretend We don't try to force letting go. The Buddha does not offer as a solution the method of repression, of denying our desires. The attempt to drive desire away with a mind full of fear and loathing is only aversion. The tool, and this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, the tool the Buddha holds out to free the mind from desire is understanding. Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of of desire, when we investigate closely with keen attention, desire falls away by itself. In this investigation, though, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. Remember what Wilbur said? It's a commitment to the truth. So our investigation must be concerned with not what is pleasant, but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our comfort. Real security, true security, always lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. It's an important piece in Dharma practice.
So the retreat form, this moment-to-moment paying attention, relaxing into each experience, allowing it, seeing its nature, seeing that it comes and goes. This is where we hone our capacity to see the truth. The Buddha said, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past is gone. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. And so... Renunciation at this level is a renouncing of the past and future. Letting yourself be here, now, this moment. D.T. Suzuki talks about this practice in a really interesting way. The language may be a little I don't know if archaic's the right word, but it's from a different time, but I I really appreciate his language. He calls this practice the philosophy of intuition. He says, the philosophy of intuition takes time at its full value. It permits no ossification, as it were, of each moment. In other words, no reification, solidification of each moment. No concretization. It takes hold of each moment as it is born from emptiness. Momentariness is therefore characteristic of this philosophy. Each moment is absolute, alive, significant. The frog leaps, the cricket sings, a dewdrop glitters on the lotus leaf, a breeze passes through the pine branches, and the moonlight falls on the murmuring mountain stream. This moment. And you could all make up your own little poem about this moment. The sound system hums, my knees ache, The speaker goes on and on. (laughs) Everybody giggles for a moment, and then silence. Kind of continuing what Howie said last night. It says, a faint foretaste of Nibbana freedom, awakening. A faint faint foretaste of nibbana may be experienced in each act of joyful renunciation and in moments of serene non-attachment. To know oneself, if but temporarily and partially to be free from the slavery of passions and the blindness of illusion, to live and think in the light of knowledge, if but for a time and a limited extent, These are not just simple experiences 
but the most positive and elevating experiences for those who know more than the fleeting and deceptive happiness of the senses. The Buddha said, There are two kinds of happiness, O monks, the happiness of sense pleasures and the happiness of renunciation. But the greater of them is the happiness of renunciation. So there are three words that I associate with this practice when I think about what we're doing here. There are three very simple words to explain or describe describe our practice of renunciation. There are the words relax, release, and relish. I came across them all grouped together in an etymological dictionary. And it says, ultimately, relax, release, and relish are all the same word from the same root. They go back to the Latin, which meant loosen. So to lax, lax meaning loosen, relax. And so we begin by learning to relax in the moment, allowing, opening, not doing anything, simply being. Letting the body relax, the heart relax, the mind relax, the whole being simply open here. Loosening, loosening, relaxing, softening, not resisting, not grasping, either way. And so relax was acquired from the Latin verb, while release, coming from the old French, was that the notion of loosening, loosening having led on to letting go, releasing. And so as we relax, 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 letting go happens. We don't even do it. We simply hear, opening, things come. They may have a big wave or a small wave or no wave, but they release on their own. We didn't beckon them and we don't keep them. Their nature is seen, known. As we relax and they release, and then we get to (coughs) relish. And relish also from the French, was the sense that taste, that the taste we have, comes from the idea that what is released or left behind after the food and drink has been swallowed. Then we have taste. And so we relax, things release because it's their nature to come and go. And then there's this taste that's left for us. It's the taste of freedom. And it's a sweet taste. It keeps us coming back here time after time after time because we've tasted it here. No matter how hard the retreats are sometimes. 
Now, it does take some discipline to do this practice. And I like to just mention that because I think it goes hand in hand with this sense of renunciation of devoting ourselves fully to our practice while we're here and all of our life. And people, again, like renunciation, discipline has a little bit of a bad rap. It's kind of un-PC in a certain way. <clears throat> but again, if you, if you really know what it means, it always originally had to do with uh, a disciple or a scholar. And so discipline had to do with practice, with learning, with education, with the schooling. That's what discipline was about. And only later did it start to have some meaning uh, in terms of training habits to create order and subordination. I think it's much more a recent last few hundred years concept. Meditation, if discipline is about practice and learning, about educating ourselves, and even the word bhavana, which we translate as meditation, a better translation is a training of the heart and mind. That's what meditation practice is. And so meditation is a contemplative discipline. And like any discipline, it takes some work, it takes some effort. But you'll notice that the effort moves in any discipline, whether it's music or dance, to a kind of relaxed effort an ease, as we learn the basic forms and the basic structures, and then we just relax into the forms and structures. And it takes some discipline not to live in the past and not to live in the future. They're quite enchanting. Beautiful to remember things. Beautiful to imagine things. Nothing bad about it. But notice that all that's happening in this moment. And so you don't even have to stop. You can think about the past or future. In this practice, just know it now and know what that experience is like. The last piece. I like to mention what inspired this talk for me. And this, what inspired this talk, the person who inspired it, was a friend of mine, um, the familiar, if he's familiarly known as Stubal. And I saw Stubal last year when I was on the East Coast for the first time in over 10 years. And he's my age. He's about 50, and he and I became friends when I was 18. And we've been friends ever since we were in New York together. We lived on the Lower East Side together. Um, we did a radical political street theater together. It used to be called Guerrilla Theater. And, um, and the theater was a, quite a formative experience for everybody who was involved. It was a great theater and very powerful. And 
very vital in, in New York and vital for all of us, really fabulous. And so we were like family, all the people. I still know many people from that street theater. And we keep in touch and uh, just a lot of love between us. And so Stubal and I were friends and stayed friends. And I would visit him and we would see each other and always kept in touch. And he once flew, uh, when I got married, he flew like, I don't know, 24 hours straight from Kathmandu to be at the wedding and missed it because of some plane problems. And, but it was that kind of feeling, you know. And, you know, we went different directions after about 1972, after the street theater ended, and uh, we did different things. But again, there was this family feeling, so we, we always knew where each other was. And, and Stubal became kind of a big businessman, really big businessman, made a lot of money. Uh, sometimes I'd go visit him, he had a fabulous house on Long Island and boats and cars and sometimes I'd visit him one time he said oh come visit me in St. Croix so I said sure I'll come visit you in St. Croix he had a house so I come there he didn't just have a house he said here's your house you know so I had a little house on the property now the problem was that Stubal had an illegal business. <laughs> okay? Just, you know, his karma. And he got busted. He got busted. He, he actually got busted a number of years after he'd retired, but he was big enough, didn't matter that he'd retired. He, he was a big deal when he got busted. And... Uh, he spent 10 years in jail. And I communicated him a little bit. I never talked to him. We traded some letters. The first two years, he didn't communicate with anybody. And it wasn't uh, exactly safe to communicate with him. Like, it was such a scene. You know, it was a big bust. Uh, I'll give you an example of what he lost. You know, he lost the house on Long Island, probably about a, a million and a half in that house. He lost all the cars, the boat. He lost about $20 million. It was the first time the American government ever got into Swiss bank accounts. And they made some kind of deal with the Swiss banks that they split the money. This is a true story. And, uh, and as Stu said, this is a little aside, but he said, you know what they did with the money? He said they, uh, they, the American government took the money, gave it to the region where he was busted, and they built a police station with that money and, and all the police cars. And he said, and they didn't even name it after me. <laughs> and so it was a big deal that he got busted. And, we, and I hadn't seen him in 10 years, and I was really excited to see him, happy to see him. And I just thought, and all that time, we never talked much about jail and the little correspondence we were doing. It was just more, how you doing? You know, here's what's happening with my family or my life. And, and so um, 
So I decided I was going to ask him any question I wanted to ask him. I really wanted to hear about it because I don't know so many people. I'm not friends with so many people who are in jail, but a lot of people are in jail these days. Uh, it's not a, it's, you know, it's kind of crazy that way, but it's true. So he said the most interesting thing he said was how he kept his dignity in jail. And he was moved ten times. He was in a number of different jails. He said every time he moved, he'd have to let go of everything. All he could take were the deck shoes, khaki pants, khaki shirt. Um, I think that was it. He couldn't even take his toothbrush or books or anything. And he never knew if they would follow him or not. They're supposed to, but he said often they wouldn't. He said people are desperate in jail. So they would grab things. They would take things. Because, you know, they didn't have much. And he'd have to leave on a moment's notice. He said, you just let go. There's nothing else to do. There's no choice about letting go. He said, in 10 years in jail, he never watched TV. I, I was a little shocked. Personally, I figured, okay, if I was going to spend 10 years in jail, I'd leave, watch sports. I like sports. You know, it's like you're in jail. What? I said, why? I said, why didn't you? He said, because that's where trouble often happened. If you bump somebody, if you change the channel, somebody was watching. It was, it was not a, an area that was so safe. So he avoided it totally for 10 years. He said the meat and chicken was unedible. And I mean, remember where he's coming from. He used to eat in some very good restaurants. <laughs> And, you know, now he's eating in jail. He said he couldn't eat the meat or the chicken. He became a vegetarian. He said he learned to become a microwave gourmet. And he worked very hard in jail, and often he would try to get kitchen jobs or commissary jobs because the perks you could get would be a clove of fresh garlic or a head of fresh garlic or a piece of ginger, he said. And then he could cook really well. <clears throat> He said it was really important to stay awake in jail. It's a tough place. People are there for all different reasons, all different kinds of people. He said some people are really fine, some people are not fine. He said you never knew when something would happen, so you had to stay awake. He said there were fights, there were thefts, bed burnings, knifings. You stay awake in that kind of environment. His wife stopped relating to him after about five years for many different reasons. She needed to for her own sanity, I think. It was very hard. Three small kids that she was dealing with, trying to keep everything together. And he did have contact with his kids when she was seeing him and afterwards, but he said that was tough to kind of have her bail on him. His mom died while he was in prison. He couldn't go to the funeral. And he got out about a year and a half ago now. And he had this attitude that was quite striking. He said there was no time for remorse or resentment. He was really happy. He was happy just to be out of jail to be able to be with his children. 
his wife, after she got used to him being around, after a couple months, she apologized for stopping seeing him. And he said an amazing thing. He said, oh yeah, I told her it's okay. He said, don't worry, you kept the kids together. That's what was important. And when we talked about the money, he just said, it's gone. <laughs> he said, you know, some ways, easy come, easy go. <laughs> he said his wife, not only did the money go, but his wife, he traveled a lot in Asia. He said his wife had to sell off, he had 35 incredible tonkas and Persian rugs and statues and jewelry. He said his, all that had to be sold. He told me a piece I didn't know. I'd known about everything else. He said, you know, I actually had a lot of money in the stock market that they got. He said, if that would have stayed in the stock market, I would have been a billionaire now. <laughs> it's beyond my imagination even. Pretty wild. So that night, he said, um, actually, I took him out to dinner, which I probably had never done before because he'd always taken me out to dinner. And that night, he said, come, you'll stay with me. And like I've said, I've stayed at his homes before. And we went, and he had this little basement apartment. He had a room, a bathroom, a kitchen, that was it. And we're there for a few minutes. I'm looking around, and I see he's got a little futon on the floor. And I say, Stu, where am I going to stay? He said, no, no problem. I'll make a bed for you. And he put out these... Um, lawn chair mats on the floor and wrapped them in a sheet and got me a pillow and some blankets said, here, this is for you. And it was him being generous. I mean, he wouldn't think of having me go to a motel or something. And to be honest, I haven't slept on the floor in quite a while, but I wasn't about to refuse him. And so we slept there that night. And he did one other thing that was striking. Too. He, t he was talking about the jewelry was gone, and he'd always had all this great stuff. He said, oh, there's a few things left. He brought out this box, and there were just like little trinkets from Asia. And he picked up a little Ganesh, little teeny Ganesh. He said, here, you take this. It was beautiful, his generosity. It's really something. And so we talked about meditation retreats and retreat practice. He was really interested in it, and he said, a very interesting thing. He said, it sounded like jail in many ways. <laughs> and then he said another thing that it's worth listening to. He said, he said, it sounded harder than jail. He said, I didn't have a choice. When you have a choice, it's harder. You think you can get away from something. He couldn't get away. Hmm. So just to let you know, he, he did some really good things in jail. He went to college, which he'd never done, got a BA in business, right? <laughs> he connected with his religion, with Judaism, very deeply. He worked really hard. He was a model prisoner. And when he got out, he would just go looking for jobs, telling everybody he'd been in jail and telling them why. He'd say, well, I was running a $20 million business. 
And so people liked that, actually. They were impressed. And so he got jobs, and he's, he's doing really well. And the thing that was maybe most striking was I saw him get harder as he got more rich. He actually got less generous as he got wealthier and wealthier. And he was tougher. And that was gone now. He was, he was as sweet as when I met him when we were both 18. It, it, it was striking to see that. So please, enjoy your practice of discipline, of study, and of renunciation, of devoting yourself fully, of giving yourself fully to this moment. I'll end with a poem from William Carlos Williams called Thursday. He says, I have had my dream like others and it has come to nothing so that I remain now carelessly with feet planted on the ground and look up at the sky, feeling my clothes about me, the weight of my body in my shoes, the rim of my hat, air passing in and out at my nose, and decide to dream no more. Let's sit for a moment, please. The dreaming that he's talking about is just to be here with the amazing, simple, mysterious reality of this moment. 